This is episode 188 of That Shakespeare Life. Our show this week is brought to you by our members here at That Shakespeare Life, who not only submit topic suggestions and questions to be asked directly to our guests on the show, but members get exclusive access to our video streaming library and printable Shakespeare resources like worksheets, lesson plans, and more. Explore all the benefits of becoming a member and sign up today at castycash.com slash member. And stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Nini Mikaila, historical costumier, tailor and author of The Tudor Tailor, Reconstructing 16th Century Dress. Another great method for studying the history of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. Yeah, Samuel said immediately went back. Within a couple of days, he went back, and five days later, he brought Massasoit and the other, and Squanto and his other members of the Poconoka tribe. And in that visit, they engaged and entered into this treaty that lasted over half a century. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. It is Thanksgiving this week here in the U.S., where we take time to intentionally be grateful for what we've been given and count our blessings. But it's also the one time of year where the whole nation remembers an event that began during the life of William Shakespeare, the journey of the pilgrims on the Mayflower. Not many people realize the story of William Shakespeare overlaps with that of the pilgrims, due mostly to the fact that the pilgrims wouldn't actually set sail from Plymouth until 1620, which is four years after the death of William Shakespeare. However, the Puritans were a major part of Shakespeare's life in England prior to that fateful day in 1620, including Puritans who lived within walking distance of the known residences Shakespeare took up in London. The story of the Mayflower, Pilgrims, and so-called strangers that traveled with them, including Miles Standish, William Brewster, and William Bradford, informs our understanding of Shakespeare's culture and the strong religious tensions that were building up in early 17th century England. As many countries were flocking to the New World and trying to establish colonies there, England, too, was placing a mark on the new land, with settlements like Jamestown being established under Captain John Smith in 1607. At the same time, the pilgrims were seeking to go to this New World, but for a decidedly different reason. As a group of religious separatists, as they were known then, they were seeking the right to freedom of religion. The group capitalized on the popular wave of exploration happening under James I to secure a land patent that allowed them to travel to England and set up a new colony where they could worship and live in freedom. Accompanied by the merchant adventurers and sanctioned by the Plymouth Colony, the Pilgrims set sail on September 6, 1620. Here today to tell us about the history behind the Pilgrim's journey from England to Plymouth and the realities of that first Thanksgiving are our guests and historians behind 1620 Experience, David and Aaron Bradford. David and Aaron Bradford are a father and son team. They are 13th and 14th generation descendants, respectively, of the Plymouth Colony Governor William Bradford that we talk about in today's episode. 
They are the historians behind the forthcoming 1620 experience. David Bradford is a life member with the Society of Mayflower Descendants in the state of Delaware, where he currently serves as governor. Since 2013, in conjunction with American Liberty Tours of Westchester, Pennsylvania, David has been portraying William Bradford and sharing Bradford's account of pilgrim history with senior centers, schools, and historical societies in Delaware and Pennsylvania. Aaron Bradford discovered a passion for history as a young child when he learned that he was a direct descendant of Plymouth Colony Governor William Bradford. For the past 25 years, Aaron shared a love for history from the era of Jamestown through the American Civil War at historic sites, educational venues, and in historical films. He has a certified interpretive guide with the National Association of Interpretation, interpretive supervisor with Coastal Heritage Society, interpretive ranger at Colonial Wormslow, and offers engaging tours and educational programs as Liberty in Encounters in Savannah, Georgia, and beyond. Find out more about both our guests in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, David and Aaron. Welcome back to the show. It's so nice to have you with us again. Thank you. It's great to be back again. Yes. Traveling to the New World during Shakespeare's lifetime was not as simple as getting on a boat and heading out because under English law, to go anywhere, you had to have permission from the crown to leave. There were organizations set up to provide this permission, and the company that ended up sponsoring the pilgrims was called, fittingly, Plymouth Company. David and Aaron, how were the pilgrims able to secure approval from Plymouth Company to sail for New England in the first place? Well, that's a good question. It wasn't very easy, but the short answer would be contacts and connections, which the pilgrims actually had. William Brewster was uh, was actually an assistant to the Secretary of State that was sent over to Holland uh, years earlier. And so they really understood how the monarchy worked and this type of things, which was very helpful for getting the permission that they needed. And remember, they were also uh, not... Uh, they were person non grata, you know, they were actually exiled about 10 years earlier because of their reformist ways that were going against the state, which or the church was essentially going against the state as well. So they were over in Leiden and, uh, but they were starting to cause problems again. So you begin to, they were printing tracts and things that they were sending back to England that uh, really incensed King James. And so you begin to wonder, well, why would he let him go? You know, why would he give him permission? But it was really killing two birds with one stone. It was really beneficial to both parties because James was getting them, the pilgrims, further away to where they could cause less trouble. So it was really to his advantage to sort of get them out of there. But they, he, there was no love lost in terms of his desire to um, punish them for, for what they had done or what they were doing. It was that idea of getting getting that approval. The other thing that was kind of interesting is if the funding and the permission were obtained in a couple different ways. You had the uh, joint stock companies, which was a fairly new phenomenon within the last couple of decades. But they had started those where they allowed, that's how they raised their funds, but also got permission. Those were done by two different entities. So it wasn't just one entity they were dealing with. So, uh, and they also had a negotiator, somebody who negotiated the, the terms of the of the support that they needed from the, you've heard of the merchant adventurers. They were the ones that helped support, finance the trip. Well, Robert Cushman was a very instrumental in negotiating that. So between getting the permission to go and the patent and also getting the support to go, that's how they were able to do that. Aaron, do you have uh, anything you want to add? Well, I think... That was a question indeed. How was permission obtained from King James? And also, I think something that's rather striking is that a lot of the members of the pilgrims sold their homes, sold their possessions, 
and they really put a lot of skin in the game, as we might say today. And so it was a tremendous investment and they put their money where their mouth was. And so I think that underscores how much was at stake and how much was committed to this venture to go to the new world to start this Plymouth colony. In the new world, many areas were named after their countries of origin, including one section near present-day Cape Cod called New Netherland. Plymouth Company had originally offered New Netherland to the Puritans of the Mayflower, but the Puritans declined it in favor of Plymouth. David and Aaron, if the Puritans were in such a rush to leave England any way they could get out of there, why were they so selective about the land patent they received? Well, the land Patents, they really didn't have a lot of options. Those things weren't something they could just select like you could today, decide where you want to go. You have to keep in mind that the whole the Virginia, it was all considered Virginia, that whole eastern seaboard. And even the companies that uh, King James set up in 1606 were, it was the uh, Virginia Company of London, which was called the London Company, and the Virginia Company of Plymouth, that was called the Plymouth Company. So these things, they basically that whole eastern seaboard from about Maine down to the Carolinas is really, and about 100 miles inland was really the area that we're talking about. And if you recall, when the the pilgrims came over, they were heading for the Hudson River. That was the northern parts of Virginia from which they had the patent. And because they didn't land there, they actually landed north of there into this buffer zone between the two, the Plymouth Company's uh, authority and the Virginia Company's authority. They didn't have the authority to be there up in Plymouth. When they first landed, they even started to go down, down, they tack it about and resolved to stand for the southward, as Bradford said, to go down to the Hudson River. And interestingly, they hit immediately these shoals and roaring breakers, and they were, they thought the ship was going to get destroyed. So they turned around and went back to Provincetown Harbor and decided they better stay there for the winter. So their objective was to go like I said, to the, to the Hudson River, which was the northern parts of Virginia. Well, the pilgrims also considered uh, many different possibilities as far as where to settle. For instance, he considered Guiana near the equator, uh, which they understood to be such a climate that was vastly different from what their quote-unquote English bodies, as William Bradford described it, were accustomed to. And one of the four reasons that Bradford listed as to why the pilgrims left Holland was the realization that their children were losing their identity as Englishmen, and that they were becoming Dutch. And also, Bradford wrote that when they arrived off of Cape Cod, in a very stirring realization of what they had crossed and where they were now, he wrote that may not and ought not our children rightly say that our fathers were Englishmen and crossed over this great ocean and were ready to perish, but the Lord heard them and delivered them. And so just their identity as Englishmen was very strong and was something that was certainly within the minds of the pilgrims. And so while they considered possibly going with the Dutch or going with others, their identity as Englishmen was rather strong. I'd like to also add, Aaron, that when they went considered going down to Guiana, one of the reasons that they decided not to go there was not just that the climate was particularly hot, but and that they weren't sure what kind of crops and things they could they could grow there. But they also uh, were going into territory that was pretty much uh, dominated by the Spanish. And at that time, they were still very much, this Treaty of Antwerp was, was ending in 1621. That's one of the reasons they were also motivated to leave Holland was 
hostilities between the Spanish and the and the Dutch was set to resume, and uh, they thought this was they they'd enjoyed twelve years of peace throughout the entire length of that treaty. So and now it was going to expire, and they thought, oh boy, and some of their kids were joining the Dutch Dutch army and navy or stuff, and it was like that was another reason for them choosing not to go to Guyana, but also why they needed to leave Leiden. Yes, they were also painfully aware of what the Catholic Spaniards did to the French Protestants at Fort Caroline in North Florida in 1565. During what that time, French Protestants had built Fort Caroline in what would be considered North Florida. And when the Spaniards attacked, they put the men, women, and children to the sword. And the Caribbean at the time was referred to as the Spanish Main. That was the uh, extent, you could say, of the power of the of the Spaniards. And so understanding that, well, you could argue that the pilgrims had a lot in common with the Dutch Protestants, yet their identity as Englishmen was very important to them. So I think that might have affected their decision to go to the northern parts of the Virginia colony, which also Captain John Smith, he referred to as New England. So when you consider a number of the settlements being New Amsterdam, which became New York City, when the English captured it later on, just that idea of taking the flag of your country from the old world and bringing it to the new world and playing that flag and carrying on that conviction and that vision is something that I believe the Pilgrims are very well aware of. Most of the passengers aboard the Mayflower were Puritans, but even in the surviving monuments to the Plymouth voyage, acknowledgement is given to a group called, quote, strangers. These men and women were not Puritans, nor motivated by religion specifically to leave England. They were members of the merchant adventurers that we've mentioned before, sent along with the pilgrims in part as experts in the rugged life that awaited the passengers on arrival in the new world. David and Aaron, who are some of these merchant adventurers that traveled with the pilgrims and why were they motivated to be part of this religious separatist movement? That's a good question. There were, some of them were functional people. They were there because they had a useful job to do. For example, some of the most common or well-known, I should say, members that came over that were not part of the Leiden congregation were John Alden, one of the more famous ones. Uh, he was the cooper. He was the made the the barrels that they kept gunpowder in, they kept fish in to pack and send back. They it was a lot he was a carpenter basically. So he was he came over uh, basically for his skills. He was 21 years old and he was not married. So he was a very uh very eligible bachelor <laughs> coming over to the New World. But the other one uh is Miles Standish. He was one who the pilgrims knew in Leiden, but he was not, he came because he could organize the defenses and become their military commander. So these are a couple, another uh, one. You know, a lot of these were, people were servants. There's about nine servants there. A lot of them were children of their, of their parents brought their kids over. Uh, that was the other thing. They were really planning. A, it's like a church plant of sorts. You know, they were actually going, planning they brought their families, which was very unusual at that time. Everyone else just, even the Jamestown Colony was just men that were there. Uh, they started with a trading post and then they ended up trying to uh, make a colony, but they weren't there to establish families, to establish a community and a colony that was uh, to serve their community there in the world. Aaron, there was another one. You, I think a good example is um, you talk about somebody who had experience. Uh, 
Stephen Hopkins, I believe. Wasn't he? Yes, indeed. He was the only one of the passengers aboard the Mayflower who had been to the county of Jamestown. And when we speak of that Shakespeare life, Stephen Hopkins' experience of sailing over to Jamestown and being struck by a tempest and being uh, washed ashore aboard an island for several months before they were able to redouble their efforts and make it onward to Jamestown. Uh, Stephen Hopkins had much experience with the natives there in Jamestown. He returned back to England and then came over on the Mayflower. He's the only one of those original passengers that had been to Jamestown and went to Plymouth as well. And so he brought very valuable experience of dealing with the indigenous people. And there also were some other sailors as well. And so we think about the tight quarters on the Mayflower uh, during that 66-day voyage. Uh, the experience of the sailors, by the name of Clark and Coppin, for instance, those are two sailors who have been off the coast of Cape Cod many times. And so their firsthand experience having civil's waters proved invaluable to Captain Christopher Jones and the crew of the Mayflower. So bringing that experience proved very important to the success of the voyage of the Mayflower. So when we think of uh, the people that were systematically recruited for this successful voyage, one can better appreciate the planning and foresight that went into this preparation and also to how much smaller the world was in 1620 than maybe we give it credit for. From bad weather to disagreements about the plan for travel, the pilgrims had several delays in departure from Plymouth and England, including a leaking ship that had to be repaired. David and Aaron, what were the delays encountered by the Mayflower when it went to take its first departure? And how was the journey impacted by having to leave later in the year than originally planned? There are probably two major issues that were responsible for the delay. Uh, The primary one was the Speedwell itself, the uh, uh, seaworthiness of it. They had lots of leaks. By the time they took it, the Pilgrims left Delshaven on the Speedwell and went across the channel, didn't have any problems with it going across there. They hooked up with the Mayflower in Southampton. That's when they started having trouble. The other major cause for some delay or some concern was the last minute changes to their the terms of their contract that Thomas Weston imposed upon them. They were very unhappy about that. One of the major changes that he made was they had committed to working uh, six days a week. Of course, the Sabbath was was their holy day. And he had said that now they had to work seven days a week. So I mean, they're working. Uh, this was something that was totally unacceptable to them. And it was very upsetting to them. But being again, so late, as it was getting later and later in the year, and they had to make that decision whether to go or not, they ended up agreeing to go under those terms. But there were several other stops they made, uh, Aaron, when, when they left Southampton, the Speedwell. How many times did they have to go back? Yes, yeah, so they left Southampton, the Mayflower and the Speedwell left Southampton together on approximately August 5th. Uh, however, they put out to sea and the Speedwell leaked and they returned to Dartmouth, England. They gave a thorough inspection of the Speedwell from top to bottom. Uh, they put to sea again and ended up being about 300 leagues west, and then they returned to Plymouth once more. And they were resigned, therefore, to consolidate their supplies, and also approximately 30 of the passengers who originally signed up for the voyage then decided to remain in England. And so they had to press on with simply one of the two vessels that they originally had contracted for this voyage. 
I suppose on something of a side note, William Bradford noted in his history of Plymouth Plantation, those determined that afterward that the master and the crew of the speedwell were purposely overmasking the sails on the, ma- on the speedwell. And that caused it to take on more water and it caused the leaking. Because after they left the speedwell back in England, the speedwell served for many more years afterward with no troubles whatsoever. So I find that a very large exclamation point into how late and how delayed the pilgrims were in their voyage. As opposed to leaving about the 1st of August, they instead were leaving on September 6th. That's when they finally departed being compacted together aboard the Mayflower. And it lends credence to the fact that the master and the crew of this speedwell were so afraid and so unwilling to go such late in that season um, across the Atlantic um, that it shows how dire straits they were in. And as they did go across the Atlantic, they were uh, set upon by many uh, storms. Bradford, in his history of Plymouth Plantation, describes how they were set upon by many storms. And there's one very fascinating description that happened. And actually, uh, Dad, if you want to go ahead and describe perhaps that um, that's a beam that was used that allowed them to continue with the voyage. Yeah. Yeah, one of the one of the storms that they had when when they would encounter a storm, they would take all the mass down and and sort of so that they the the wind wouldn't catch it and tip it over, and so they would just bob on the ocean like like a, like a cork on water. This was called being at hull, H U L L, and uh, they were oftentimes having that happen. Uh, but halfway across, they had a uh, the, one of the main beams in the midships bowed and and cracked, which made all of the the sailors uh, fear for the sufficiency of the ship, as, as he put it, and they were debating whether to turn around and go back a final time and just, you know, cancel this whole thing about halfway over. But the uh, the carpenter, uh, they, they worked out a way to get some su- support under the beam. They had this great iron screw that they brought with them out of Holland that was typically used to raise up like large wood so in building houses. They could stack the wood and that sort of thing. Well, they used this screw to push the support the beam and put it in place and they caulked above above as much as they could above board to where they felt it was sufficient to continue the voyage and they they proceeded being <laughs> giving thanks to god for the for the provision of that so it was a very dramatic uh, event that occurred halfway over and right after they had got it fixed in another storm john howland falls overboard and that was a whole other story he was fathoms underwater and he ended up they ended up throwing a boat hook over and and, and saving him. Uh, and he ended up being one of the most prolific pilgrims. He had like 11 children <laughs> and became a profitable member both in church and commonwealth. It's just terrifying to me because, you know, they're not like pulling into some station. They're out in the middle of the ocean when this breaks right. and they're just hoping we're going to do this repair. We hope we don't sink. <laughs> oh, and it, they were so cramped together. It was, they, the, the, they had five foot ceiling in that midship. So if you were like six foot tall, you are always bent over. <laughs> I mean, you could, I mean, it was just, it was very cramped and they all had their, their little one or six foot square space for each person. And that was, it was extremely uncomfortable and, and unpleasant. You can imagine having to go through those storms. Uh, it's just amazing today that we, to try to compare it to something today is, is almost 
possible to do. It would be difficult. Now, yeah. now we've mentioned several countries. You know, we talked about New Amsterdam and we talked about the Dutch and just different different countries settling along the eastern coast there. When the pilgrims of the Mayflower arrived where they did, were they the first Europeans that had tried to settle in that area? Yes, in the sense of settling. They were not the first, however, to be there. Uh, the Indians were very familiar and had done a lot of trade with uh, for 100 years. I mean, uh, they were different people that had come over. They had done trade with the French and, uh, and the Dutch had come over. They, they were familiar with the English. In fact, Back in the 20 years prior uh, is, is when some of the uh, sailors had actually taken some of the natives captive and, and taken them over to Spain, to Malaga, to, to sell into slavery. But the, these were the first group of, of English people that had actually came with the intent of staying and settling there. That's an important distinction. They weren't the first ones to land there. People were very familiar with it. But they were, again, just coming for trade and for to go and gather, you know, get furs and lumber and things like that and then return to their country. They, they didn't plan to stay until the Pope. In 1605, a French cartographer, Samuel de Champlain, made a map of the Plymouth Harbor where the pilgrims would ultimately settle. And on his map, he showed a Patuxent village as a thriving settlement. And six years before the pilgrims set sail, John Smith published a map of the same area, labeling this now abandoned Patuxent village as, quote, New Plymouth. Did the pilgrims use these maps to help inform their voyage? And when the pilgrims landed in this area, were the maps they were using correct? Is what they found there a thriving settlement? Well, the answer is yes, they did use it. They used uh, John Smith's map, as a matter of fact. That was the map that uh, the, the pilot or captain of the Mayflower used. Yes, they were quite accurate or useful to, I don't know if they didn't have it measured down per, perhaps as precisely as we would today, but they were certainly uh, very accurate. Uh, what they did they find a thriving settlement there? Not at all. <laughs> they found just the opposite, actually, because in 1616 to 1619, for three years, there was this plague or disease that had gone through, just swept down from Maine through the East Coast. It got down around the southern part of the Cape Cod there, and thankfully, it didn't turn left and go out west because uh, the, the Indian tribe down. There was the Narragansett, and they were not touched at all by this plague, but it decimated Patuxent. I mean, there was no one there anymore. It was totally abandoned. But the maps were good, and they also had, I think Aaron had mentioned, uh, John Coppin and, uh, and uh, John Clark. In fact, they even they named, there's a little island where they, during a storm, they actually, when they were exploring the coast, they actually when it got safely ashore and turned out to be an island that is now called Clark's Island. It was named after one of the, the seamen who was very familiar with that area. I guess one thing to add is just that there was evidence that the pilgrims found themselves of sadly those who had perished during this awful plague. And if you read the words of the pilgrims, they believe that God is sovereign and that God and his ways that are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so they, if again, if you read the words of Bradford, they, they know the hand of God in these things that had occurred. And so I believe that is something that was on their minds as they saw, sadly, the desolation that had occurred before on that land. 
but yes, um, seeing the evidence of those who had perished um, is something that the pilgrims saw. The lack of people who were left, I and mean, we don't know precisely, but approximately 95% of those who had lived in that land um, just a few years earlier, from 1616 to 1619, lost their lives during that terrible plague. Presumably when they arrived, John Smith was notably shocked at what was there, having left um, with it being a thriving settlement. And then everyone arrives and it's destroyed. But the pilgrims who were on the Mayflower didn't have that frame of reference necessarily. So how did they fill in this gap of, okay, our map says we're supposed to see a thriving settlement, but there's nothing here. How did the English learn about the deaths of the Patuxet tribe that had lived there before they arrived? There's one thing I want to say is is that keep in mind they were going they were planning to arrive their maps and everything were to take them down to the hudson river so they were up in land that they were not planning to go to so that this wasn't where they intended to arrive at what they found or how they learned about what happened here uh, was basically in, in the spring of the next year after that first horrible winter when half their company died uh it was about the 16th of march bradford writes about about the 16th of march a um what did he say? A certain Indian came boldly amongst us and spoke to us in broken English, which we could well understand, but marveled at it. And he went on to tell them about, he was an Abenaki. His name was Samoset. He was, for, he was down visiting from up in Maine. And he came boldly into their village and started to explain to them and share with them lots of, of things. He was, they considered him very, very profitable <laughs> in that he, provided them lots of information about the state of the country is the way he put it, who the people were, their names, their number, their strength, how, how many people there were, all of this stuff they, he was willing to share with them. So he's the one that basically came and they found out about it by meeting them because, yeah, Samuel said immediately went back within a couple of days, he went back and five days later, he brought Massasoit and the other and Squanto and these other members of the Poconoka tribe. And in that visit, they engaged and entered into this treaty that lasted over half a century. It was a very important in, encounter uh, because Samoset went back and brought to Squantum, who was named Squanto, or they, they called him Squanto, but he could speak better English than himself because he had actually been abducted by Thomas Hunt about years earlier and had been one of those that had gone to Spain and got away to England and was there for a while and learned English and actually made his way back and found his village. He was a Patuxet. He was, he was from that area, found his entire community had been decimated. So he went and stayed with the Poconokets, but that was not his, his native family tribe. I think it's important to point out that Squanto did not return to the Patuxet village where he was born with the Mayflower. He was there after the Mayflower got there, but he was the last, as you mentioned, Patuxet tribesman. And he survived the death of his tribe because he was in England as a slave. So that begs the question for me of why was Squanto specifically not apprehensive about the pilgrims? Why would he be motivated to connect the pilgrims with Massasoit and the Wampanoag and to help be a part of, of bridging these connections that would allow the pilgrims to settle and thrive there? Were the Wampanoag not worried about the pilgrims? 
Well, they weren't as worried about the pilgrims because, again, these were these. This was a bunch of family people. There was there was not that many of them, and they brought a lot of women and children. They recognized something unique about them in that regard, and they had a spiritual connection, as told to me or told to our group by one of the orators of the of the Poconoka tribe, who uh, Paul Whedon, who came to one of our Mayflower Society meetings and was sharing with us. In the native oral tradition, there was there was something very different about these people, and they recognized mm-hmm. there was a spiritual connection because they were they were a religious uh, a people themselves, more so than the other tribes in the area. So I think it again when you think about the providence of God, and you think about why did they land there? Why was nothing there? In fact, none of the Indian tribes wanted to be on that land because it was it wasn't like they were taking their land. Nobody wanted to be there because it had that plague there, and they didn't know how long it was going to last and so they didn't want to go back and resettle there so he clears out this land the lord does you know so he comes there and then he's why these people why this tribe as all the other tribes that they could have met with it was a tribe that had a very spiritual component to their lives and that was very significant and paul whedon speaks very eloquently about that that relationship and so from squanto's point of view he was he was in the catbirds i mean he he could speak english he could it really he became very important and he became very useful to the Poconocas as well as to the English because he could he could help in the translation. He could be so he saw this as a wonderful opportunity. In fact, he thought of it as almost too wonderful an opportunity because it really got him into trouble. He started started going to his head and he started negotiating things with other tribes and trying to get them to rely on him rather than Massasoit. And Massasoit actually brought him up basically on sedition charges and asked the pilgrims to send him he was staying with the in the Plymouth colony and he asked them to send him back and he was good he was going to have to answer for sedition and basically the penalty for that was death and the pilgrims didn't I mean they didn't want to do that Bradford called Squanto an instrument sent of God for our good beyond our expectation he was somebody they didn't want to part with he was very very helpful in communicating though he was a little devious <laughs> and in fact massasoit actually sent his knife back to make sure for them to execute the judgment on because that was part of the terms of the treaty so in one sense the pilgrims were sort of violating the treaty by not turning over an enemy of the state so to speak to the native tribe so um, he sent him his knife so that he would actually cut his hands off and his head send it back to him as proof that he had he had executed this judgment on him. So Squano was in big trouble. A large part of it was of his own doing. He would tell the other tribes that the, the English kept this in, in, in barrels buried in the ground. They kept this plague that they could come out any time. But hey, you know, I'll take care of you and this sort of thing. It was almost like a... He's playing both sides like a double agent, really. Yeah, he's, well, and you're, pay, you're paying for protection it's a protection racket you know okay these guys you know these I'll, I'll keep you on these guys good side just you know come to me and everything and so he really uh really got him into some trouble when the pilgrims arrived we often tell this story as if they they came here and there were indians or there were natives that were there we tell it as a group i've mentioned the wampanoag but you've mentioned a different Indian tribe name that I'm not familiar with. And we've also mentioned the Patuxet. So was there just one Indian group here that the pilgrims were interacting with? Or was there actually several tribes that they were interacting with and possibly having treaties with when they got here? That's a wonderful question. I, 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 yeah, I, I assume people know a lot of the stuff that I, we 
need to be careful of because, yes, there were a lot of native tribes. In fact, the Narragansett that was south, you know that little hook on Cape Cod? That's where the Nauset tribe was. They're the ones that they actually returned the corn that they had borrowed. They found out that's where that's where that had come from. And they went and they made a trip over there to pay them back and pay them twice the amount that they uh, to, to make sure they had good satisfaction with the Nauset. But the Narragansett were a very hostile. They were hostile to the Poconoket. The Poconoket was the name of the confederation of tribes. There was about 30 different little communities all around there that was part, that's what's now called the Wampanoag Nation. Uh, but they weren't called Wampanoags back at that time. That's some, that's a, a term that came about later. The Poconoket was, Massasoit was the leader of a number of these communities that all had their own sacum, they were called, which is like a chief, if you think about the uh, an Indian chief who's ahead of his tribe. And the Massasoit was the chief sacum of the entire Poconoket Nation. And that was the group that was south of Massachusetts. It was down below almost where Bristol, uh, Rhode Island is today. It's down in that area. But the Narragansett was south of there. And you also had the Pequot that were north of there. There was the Nickmuck, the Massachusetts. There were all these Indian tribes. And a lot of them didn't get along. You know, you ask why did were the, uh, the Poconoket so interested in getting along with the pilgrims is even though they weren't very large in number, they had these weapons. They had this that were frightening to a lot of the other Indians. And they had lost so many people that they were, I say at risk, but they were, they were very compromised in terms of their ability to defend themselves. So they were looking at the pilgrims as, hey, we have a reason to want to establish friendships with these before they be, if the Narragansett gets to them, we're, we're, they could just wipe us out completely. So the Indian tribes weren't all just one happy family. They had their own rivalries and animosities that would come out. That's why Massasoit saw the pilgrims as a potential benefit or an ally and wanted to establish good relations with them. Thank you for explaining that because I was I was confused and I think that that clarifies it perfectly that e- each of these tribes had their own structure and governance and allies and enemies and even worldviews and and religion. Yeah, some were religious and some weren't. There was the uh, the Poconoket were known as the Praying Indians. That was the nickname among the native communities, which was distinctive in some ways because their their religion was it's surprisingly. Uh, I could go on about the about the the interaction that Winslow has a that spends all night talking to Corbettan, who was one of the Sacums within the Pocono tribe, and he was he was telling him about his religion, and he was talking about the Ten Commandments and all this sort of stuff. And he finds out from Corbettan, he says, "Well, we we believe pretty much all that as well. We, in fact, they had their founding god was called Keaton. They was." Uh, they had, they believed in all the commandments except this, this Winslow says except the seventh commandment. They didn't had a little bit of problem with one about committing adultery. They didn't they didn't quite they didn't quite get that one or something. So it's kind of humorous where he talks about all of them except that one. And that was a surprise to Winslow because when he had early written back to England, he was telling them about this uh, and and had referred to them as as not having religion. They were heathen. They were they were just uh, unregenerate people and. And then he actually corrected that after having this, getting to know and, and had this all night conversation with Corbettan. He finds out, you know, they and he corrected that. He, he writes about how they were they, they were much more spiritual than we had given them credit for. Most people don't know that. They don't realize that 
that there was there were misconceptions that were corrected and understood as they got to know each other better. Often we point to the pilgrims in our celebrations of Thanksgiving here in the U.S. in acknowledgement of what's often called the first Thanksgiving. William Bradford writes about a harvest feast taking place in November of 1621. David and Aaron, based on these surviving accounts, what do we know about the first Thanksgiving? Was this a real feast that took place? Yes, it was. There was a real feast that took place. It wasn't called certainly the first Thanksgiving until much later when it got associated with our Thanksgiving holiday. But we know actually very little about that first feast, uh, but we do know some particular details. I think in two paragraphs, we can tell you everything that we do know from a first-person account. There were two accounts written. One was by Bradford and one was by Winslow in a letter. Uh, December 11th of 1621, he sends a letter back where he describes in more detail what actually occurred at that time. But if I can just share with you what Bradford basically said, your listeners will know really what we knew, what we know firsthand about the first Thanksgiving. Oh, please do. He said that they began, began to gather in our, our small harvest they had and set up our houses and dwellings against winter and being all well recovered in health and strength and at all things in good plenty. Whereas some were employed in affairs abroad, others were exercised in fishing about cod and bass and other fish, of which we took good store, which in every family had their portion. All the summer there was no want, and now began to come in store of fowl as winter approached, in which this place did abound when we came first, and afterwards decreasing by degrees. Besides waterfowl, there was great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many, beside venison, etc., Besides, we had about a peck of meal a week to a person, or now since harvest, Indian corn to that proportion, which made many write so largely of our plenty here to their friends in England, which were not feigned, but true reports. That, Cassidy, is all that Bradford wrote about that first Thanksgiving. Now, the letter, when he said others wrote so largely of our plenty here, That was the letter that Winslow wrote on December 11th. It's a little more precise about this particular uh, festivities. Aaron, why don't you share that? Very well. So this is that letter from Edward Winslow. Our harvest being got in, our governor sent four men on fowling, that so we might after a more special manner rejoice together, after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as, for a little help aside, served the company almost a week. At which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and amongst the rest, the greatest king, Massasoit, with some 90 men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. That is it. That's the account, two accounts. That's the full extent of what we no first-hand accounts about that first encounter. They had three days of feasting. And at that time, after that first winter, there were only five adult women in the colony that had survived. So it was put a lot of a lot of burden on the, on, the, on the women there during that time. But they also, people say, you hear these myths, oh, they didn't even have turkey and all this sort of stuff. That would have been a big surprise to Governor Bradford, who said they had plenty of turkey. Of which we, you know, what do you say? Of which we have many, 
my kids are going to be thrilled to know that the turkey is historically turkey accurate. Turkey is, I have is good. You're golden. <laughs> After the first Thanksgiving, there was an incident that really surprised me. It occurred with several of the powerful tribes in the area who pledged their loyalty to King James of England. After heroic actions were taken in defense of these tribes by the pilgrims and Miles Standish in particular. Now, Standish wasn't himself a Puritan, but he was the military leader of their group and a de facto representative. David and Aaron explained to us this story about the young boy, John Billington, and what happened to him to secure a peace agreement with the native tribes near Plymouth Colony. Well, John Billington was a young man who was on the ship and came with his father and he was, they were his little, little problem boy. <laughs> he actually got, while they were in the harbor, he had the, he had gotten a, a musket or a matchlock or something and fired it off in the ship uh, with sparks flying around, around the gunpowder. He could have blown up the ship and he was out exploring one day and, and he had actually got lost and they couldn't find him. And so they inquired of Mass- uh, the Plymouth Colony and Bradford inquired of Massasoit if they knew where he was or who had him. And Massasoit found out and reported that, yes, he had been taken by about 20 miles south of us, or of the Plymouth Colony in Damascus. There was a group that had taken him and he was actually transferred further out on the island to the Nossets. So the Nossets had him and they needed to go, go get him. So they got in a shallop and took the ship over there. Never really did not go into their colony, but they brought him out and had him all, you know, they had all kinds of shells and things on him and he he was well taken care of and they returned him to the Plymouth colony. And and it was at that time that they also made that restitution I had mentioned earlier about the, found out that that's the the owners of that corn lived there and they gave them full satisfaction. So that was done. But then they heard while they were there that uh, Squanto and and Habamak were up at Namaskit, about 15 miles west of the colony, and that the Squanto had been killed, and that Massasoit up at Soams had been taken or killed by the Narragansett. So they rushed back, and they, they took Standish, and they went up there, and if they found that Squanto had been killed, they were going to execute the judgment as the treaty required them to do. But they found that Squanto had not been killed. And so, and then they, Habamak, who was living with him, said that he thought that wouldn't have happened without his knowledge. And he, he was convinced that was not true and that maybe Squander was instigating some of this. So he sends his wife, Bradford talks him into sending his wife up to Salams and finds out that Massasoit's not harmed at all as well. So one of it, what this did was it, it sent the message out to all the tribes in the area that, that the pilgrims were, were faithful to their to their treaty, they were they were going to support. They were good friends of Okanoka tribe. It was a good testimony to the neighboring Indians about the the sol- solidity of, of the treaty that they had. I know we would love to explore more about the Pilgrims and Plymouth and all of the different people that you've introduced us here, Squanto and Massasoit, and the whole story. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to explore this further? Quite a few, I think, that are really helpful. I guess perhaps one of the, the big picture books that are helpful in introducing the world of the pilgrims, and perhaps even to your listeners with that Shakespeare life, there's a book entitled The Treacherous World of the 16th Century and How the Pilgrims Escaped It by William J. Federer. 
And I think it's one of the best books with a 30,000 foot view of really what was going on in the world. And it gives a lot of little snippets, little facts, little things that happened on a global perspective that really help you better appreciate. Um, Even going back to some of the questions we discussed earlier tonight, as far as New Netherlands and New Amsterdam and the different empires and different countries that were vying for a stake in the new world. And I think also really helps you better appreciate when we think about you have perhaps an identity and affinity with the country, but also with your religion and just that clash within the Protestant and Catholic church, as well as with the Muslims. And um, just really helps you better appreciate what was at stake and what was going on. So that's a book that I've found that's been a really kind of quick read in a way. And it's really um, just helps give, again, the big picture uh, perspective of what was, what was going on in the world in which the pilgrims lived. So that's one book on the top of my list that I found very fascinating. There's been a new book that came out this year by James Baker, who is also probably the premier. He knows more about about pilgrim history, but also about the non-history. I call it the pilgrimography or pilgrimology. You know, it's where you've got the study of the pilgrims. He has a book called Made in America, The Pilgrim's Story and How It Grew. So it gives you not only the truth, a lot of the truths you can, he sorts through for you a lot of the truth, but also shows how a lot of the myths evolved, where they came from, how we got the story that we have today. So this is really an excellent reference book for if you really want to know a lot of, a lot of trivia, a lot of the things about how Thanksgiving, he's got another book out called Thanksgiving by James Baker, and it's the history of the holiday and all of the things and how it evolved and and he explains all that. So I think he does a wonderful job. And that's a that's a one on my list that I would highly recommend. Two books that I think are also excellent that deal with the, the faith of the pilgrims. Uh, one is One Small Candle by Francis Bremer. He was also the co-editor of the 400th anniversary edition of the of, of Plymouth Plantation that Jeremy Bangs and, and he ed, uh, edited, uh, which is an excellent. It's got a lot of new commentary and things and also the very accurate writing of Bradford's of Plymouth Plantation with the cross outs and you know things where it was it's the original text and it's just a fascinating read but Bremer does a nice job one small candle the Plymouth Puritans and the beginning of of English New England and right along with that a little smaller one but a very one of the best I've ever read Journey of Faith Why the Pilgrims Came by Dr. Paul Jaley who is the chairman or president of the Plymouth Rock Foundation, but he writes about, he does the best job of summarizing I've, I've ever seen of the reason why the pilgrims came and the faith that they had. And he uses a lot of the quotes that are most pertinent to give you a good understanding of the faith of the pilgrims. Journey of Faith by Paul Jaley. Those are excellent resources. I can't wait to read these myself. We will link to all of these books and resources in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you check out those to find out more. So what's next for you guys? What are you working on now that you're excited about? We're still working on the 1620 Experience, which uh, is an eight-part miniseries that we are really excited about. We've got several people lined up to help us share that story. It's the uh, accurate, unvarnished truth of the Pilgrims' experience as they shared it. Uh, One of the things we felt was necessary in this day and age is for to someone allow the pilgrims to speak for themselves and no one speaks for themselves better than William Bradford who, who took the time and carefully decided what things were important enough to share to his for posterity 
And what he wanted to talk about and how he wanted to say it was very carefully put together. And I just think we've got so many voices speaking for the pilgrims and nobody's letting the pilgrims speak for themselves. And that's what we attempt to do in this 1620 experience is let Bradford and Winslow speak for themselves and share some of the really powerful factual history of this remarkable and incredible relationship the pilgrims enjoyed with the Poconoka tribe for over half a century. That's one of the things we're trying to bring to the conversation, to reset the conversation around our American heritage and how what they did led to who we were in 1776 when this whole experiment in self-government uh, came, to a, came to fruition uh, as the United States of America with our Constitution and Declaration of Independence. We're very excited, too, to use that eight-part miniseries, if and when we're able to get that uh, put to sea, to really also be able to engage the next generation and to use that as a springboard, as it were, to be able to engage when it comes to uh, impactful educational presentations as well. And so we're very excited about partnering Liberty Encounters with the 1620 experience to be able to have that conversation be in the classrooms and not only in the classroom, but also at the supper table of families in our country as we consider about what is our heritage uh, as American citizens and what the freedom that we enjoy, the blessings of liberty we enjoy as Americans, what that cost those who've gone before us and what is necessary in order to preserve that. So with Six and Twenty Experience and with Liberty Encounters, we're excited to be able to equip the next generation and to continue the conversation. We will be linking to Liberty Encounters and 1620 Experience in the show notes for today's episode. So you can go there to find out where you can see this eight-part miniseries, as well as how you can visit Liberty Encounters and go on your own trek into the past in Savannah, Georgia. Make sure you check out the show notes to find those. David and Aaron Bradford, thank you so much for being here and sharing with us the history of Plymouth and the Pilgrims. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank you, Cass. It's been a joy to be here. Find links to the resources David and Aaron recommend, along with the direct link to 1620 Experience and even more history about the Pilgrims, William Bradford. And while you're there, be sure to grab the special Thanksgiving-themed artwork that's available for you to say thank you for listening here each week. You can find all these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 188. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP188. If you like the history of William Shakespeare and love to go even further into the 16th and 17th century life that he lived, then consider becoming a member here at That Shakespeare Life. Members get access to our entire video streaming library that includes video versions of our show, award-winning animated plays, documentary films, and virtual tours. Plus, members also get access to our library of printable resources, which include activities like games, candle making, calligraphy, and other activities straight from the life of William Shakespeare. Dive right into the life of William Shakespeare with specialty resources that aren't available anywhere else. Sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.